what's happening inside you when you love God? I mean, what is that like inside you? What does it feel like? You know? And he wrote these marvelous, marvelous books of, of, um, of deep philosophy about the Bhakti tradition. And he also was a poet. And he wrote volumes and volumes of poetry. And the poems are, some of them, quite, quite intimate revelation of his deepest realization of Krishna in Samadhi. When he, when, in, there's one song, I can't remember the name of the song. He says that in that state of utter depth and profound uh, surrender of myself to Krishna, he came before me and he took my hand. And um, so, this is a prayer by Bhaktivinoda Thakur, um, where he's just taken different names of Krishna and put them together. And there are different melodies. We've chanted this one before here. Um, there's a lovely evening melody. We've talked about how there's different melodies at different times of day to evoke different emotions. Morning hours, you want something kind of up tempo, you know. Speaking of up-tempo, I just have to tell you this. My wife and I went dancing um, this past Sunday at the, um, what's it called, the, uh, uh, what's that, overpass over on the west side? The Highline um, Ballroom. You know the Highline Ballroom? Awesome place, amazing. The speakers are big enough for Shea Stadium. My ears are still ringing. It's two days later. I'm you know, like upper, upper, upper C, you know, high C in my head. But there was a band there that our daughter had turned us on to named Motet. Oh my Krishna. <laughs> Were they funky. It was, I mean, just wonderful, you know, to get up and dance. So part of the joy of Kirtan is that it kind of overflows, and when it overflows, it takes the form of tears, it takes the form of kirtan, of, of chanting and dancing, and, and, and um, in some of the deeper stages, um, there's descriptions in a book called the Bhakti Rashamrita Sindhu, translated into English as the Nectar of Devotion. You can, you can get that book in English, written by, uh, translated and commented by Prabhupada, <laughs> where there's Horripilations on the skin, and hair standing on edge, and, and um, um, sneezing. Interesting symptom of ecstasy is there's and, and, and um, uncontrollable laughter, and uh, you can't stand up. You roll on the ground. <laughs> All these symptoms of ex of ecstasy that occur from the chanting. When you, if you allow, this is a very powerful sound. If you allow this sound into your heart. It unleashes these extraordinary, extraordinary energies and, and emotions are there. They're all inside us. All of these wonderful emotions are there just waiting to emerge. You know, with the right trigger, they can come out. Um, that happens sometimes, doesn't it? You'll be in a play or a concert or something and someone will say something and you'll start crying. You don't even know why. But subconsciously, something's been triggered in you. It may even be something going, going back to your childhood that you've completely forgotten. You don't remember what it was that made that moment, that sound, that word, that phrase, that combination of things so meaningful. 
but hearing it again or seeing it again or even a smell, a perfume. You know? Have you ever had that being transported back someplace to like the scent of something? And these emotions will come out again. Trans transplant that experience now to the spiritual realm and there are emotions that are inside us that we have not experienced overtly for many, many lifetimes. The right sound will trigger those deep emotions again and they come to the surface. So when you read these descriptions in Bhaktivinoda Thakur's poems or songs or hear these um, explanations of spiritual ecstasy, it's not some foreign condition. It's not some pathology that certain people go through. It's something that's inherent to the life force that comes out under the right circumstances. This is called bhakti rasa. Rasa is a taste. Anybody like Indian food here? Nah. <laughs> well, if you ever order the Maharaj Thali, you know what that is? Well, if you go to an Indian restaurant and you order the Maharaj Thali, you'll get a big stainless steel circular tray with little bowls on it. You've seen those you know, like big full dinners in Indian restaurants? In a perfect Indian meal, you have seven tastes called saptarasa. <laughs> seven rasas, seven flavors. There's something sweet, there's something salty, there's something pungent, there's something dry, a dry dish of some kind, there's something wet like a dal or a sambar. And so there's seven flavors like that. There are similar rasas or flavors of ecstatic love for Krishna. And under the right circumstances, those emotions come to the surface. So kirtan and bhajan and chanting and japa is one way to stimulate those emotions. So here's this beautiful song by Bhaktivinoda Thakur um, that uh, is simply names of Krishna put together. And the morning melody would be something, you know... The drums are going, you know, kind of getting into that morning mood, you know, the energy's going up. It's evening now, so you want to bring it down, make it mellow, right? So it goes a little bit different. The melody for this evening version sounds like this. those first three words? Yes. Let's try it all together. Hari Yeah. Uh -huh. 
slightly different. Godbrother of mine, whom I have not seen in many years, named Vishnu Jana. Vishnu Jana. And if you were to go to Goravani.com, G A U R A V A N I, I'll give it to you later. Goravani.com, right? 
That is the website for downloading any number of marvelous kirtans. And I'm, I'm not sure, but I'm willing to bet if I were a gambling person that you will find Sri Namasan Kirtan, the name is there, on Gauravani.com. And it's sung by Vishnu Jana. Vishnu Jana. And he does a lovely, lovely rendering. Huh? Is it what? I don't know. You'd have to ask the webmaster. Greetings. Yes, all right. Well, greetings and salutations to all our friends in podcast land. What you're not seeing is this beautiful group of people here in the room at Jiva Mukti. It's lovely to see you all again. How are you? How was your week? Yeah? Anyone have any announcements they want to make? <laughs> Everything good? All right. You know what we're going to do? Because Michael very kindly reminds me what a wonderful feature it is of our gatherings. We'll, we'll, we'll yak it up for a while, okay? And then um, we'll break up into our little get acquainted things at the end. And you'll have your vegan treats. Looks like we've got pears and what are those, date treats? Berry surprise. A berry, <laughs> are we going to be berry surprised? Yeah. Oh, very good. Oh, yes, that's it. So um, while we're having our treats that Cher has provided this evening, we can, you'll, you'll park yourself next to someone you don't know, just introduce yourself and get acquainted. Um, we are, so, uh, were there any announcements or business to attend to? Whoa, all right. Yes, 2.11, I believe it is. Tamar emailed me about that. I think it's 2.11. Not sure. 2.11, I think. Yeah. yeah. Um, some, oh, well, some announcements. Next week, of course, Radhanath Swami will be here. Now, for those of you who have not had a chance, how many of you have not met Radhanath Swami? Let me see by a show of hands. Okay. Well, this is, um, this is a real treat. I would urge you, if you can, to you know, call in sick or whatever you have to do. Um, uh, there's uh, those of you, again, who are going to be Joining me pre prior to the gathering here at 8 o'clock. We'll meet over at my place at 5.30. Yeah. And um, then here at 8 o'clock next Tuesday, we'll be in the Krishna room because there's not going to be enough room here. I can promise you that. And if we get over there a little early, it'll probably be a good idea. Radhanath kind of sells out the place. So um, I think last year when he was here, there were 200 and however many people there were. Um, and it, it can get a little crowded, but uh, well worth the, the, uh, the, the squeeze. So do come next week. Um, okay. Uh, along with the handout of the Bhaktivinoda Thakur song, you also have this little verse from Bhagavad Gita. Occasionally we pass these out. Uh, um, the Bhagavad Gita in word and image. So these are collectible, if you will. You can put them on your refrigerator or hang them from your car mirror or wherever you want. It's a little big for a car mirror. But um, you have here this lovely picture of St. Francis. And the Gita verse reads, And of all yogis, those who love me as I love them are greatest of all. It's a lovely sentiment. that um, Ultimately, yoga is for the opening of the heart. Our hearts have become hard, <laughs> very hard from being in the material world for a very long time. 
the, uh, the, the, the Sanskrit texts of India describe that the soul goes through millions and millions and millions of births to achieve a human form. There is an acknowledgement, if you will, of the evolutionary system in the Sanskrit text. There is no them and us kind of um, you know, friction between the uh, concept of evolution and the tra trajectory of the soul to enlightenment as there may be in some other religious cultures, for example. But in the bhakti theology and in the texts, specifically in the, in the Puranas, there's an explanation of, of evolution. There's an unfolding of the species that mirrors quite accurately uh, the Darwinian theory of evolution. So that, there's no contradiction there. If there's a difference, it's a difference in gradation of consciousness, not difference in terms of one species transforming into another species. There's no differentiation in that sense. There's a, an evolution of the consciousness that goes through different forms. Um, I remember when I was a lad, for example, and, you know, going and doing, you know, baseball in school or stickball on the streets, I was, you know, stronger, and my body was shaped differently. And, or anyone, if you, any of you have practiced yoga long enough, you've seen your body changes shape, you know. Well, that's an accommodation of consciousness. There is this intent to achieve something. The body adjusts to that sometimes quite radically. You can look quite different after having applied yourself to a sport discipline or to a yogic discipline. Evolution is different bodies accommodating consciousness on its journey towards self-awareness. And it's in the human form that there is an adequate, if you will, room, uh, intellectual room for turning attention inward to begin a self-examination. Before the human form, there may be some of that, but is not as developed as in the human form. I'm thinking specifically of what we're just, we were talking about just a little while ago, these animal friendships that emerge in preserves, usually they're private preserves, where um, because the, the animals, if, if it's a well-run preserve, the animals are cared for, they're loved, they're nurtured, and therefore they're predatory uh, disposition can abate and other parts of their personality and consciousness emerge and you have these extraordinary friendships among animals that otherwise would kill each other and eat each other. There's a video that Kim you sent me I think yeah, recently. I think, I think that's New York. We should find is that here in New York? <laughs> it looks like New York. Right? It, well it does but I'm not sure where it is. It's um, a fellow who raised animals and he happened to have had a dog, a cat and a mouse. <laughs> and he walks around the streets with the mouse on the back of the cat on the back of the dog. Now here you have three otherwise quite hostile species living in this extraordinarily friendly, <laughs> co uh, cooperative environment. Yeah. And the same is true down at the Tigers Preserve. You'll see animals who otherwise would you know, be at each other's throats, literally. But because they're need to kill to eat has been replaced with care and attention being provided by the caretakers there, that's not the priority. 
I'll bet every one of us in this room know some people like that. That they feel they have to be predatory because it's all about having to kind of get your stuff, you know? And consequently, that means I can't really be there for someone else. I'm thinking of someone I used to work for who was like that. A nice enough person when the business was going well. But when the business was not going well, you did not want to be near him. He's so identified with his work product that he could literally become unpleasant. And the company eventually failed, I think in large measure because people just didn't like doing business with him. So we can abate that, but we can attenuate that predatory part of our nature. All kinds of other wonderful things come out. And that is actually a nice segue into our verse today. Um, if you have a Bhagavad Gita, we're reading from the fourth chapter, it's verse 13, and it is in the um, Bhaktivedanta edition of the Gita on page 200. And this is um, one of the more famous verses from the Bhagavad Gita. Um, and we begin with the invocation, and then, if you would please, we'll all recite this verse together. Om Namo Bhagavate Vasudevaya 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 Bhagavad Gita chapter 4 verse 13 Chaturvarnyam maya shristam Try that much. Chaturvarnyam maya shristam Unakarma vibhagasha Unakarma vibhagasha Tasya kartaram apimam Tasya kartaram apimam Vidhya kartaram avyayam Vidhya kartaram avyayam Chaturvanya maya shristam Chaturvanya maya shristam Guna karma vibhagasha Guna karma vibhagasha Tasya kartarama pihimam Tasya kartarama pihimam Vidhiyakartarama vyayam Vidhiyakartarama vyayam Now there are a few people who have asked me to not call on them to try reciting this, so I won't. But if there's anyone who would like to try, your time has come. So would anyone like to go ahead, Nick? You're you're up. You're up at back. Chat. 
13th verse, according to the three modes of material nature and the work associated with them, the four divisions of human society are created by me. And although I am the creator of this system, you should know that I am yet the non-doer, being unchangeable. Well, here we are um, embarking on our new weekly adventure into the Bhagavad Gita, making connections between a world that we do know, the world that our senses can perceive, and the world that is beyond our sensory limits, the world of transcendence. And our guidebook here is this wonderful ancient text, the Bhagavad Gita, which according to the Gita itself was enunciated first at the dawn of time, at the dawn of creation, and was passed down through the generations as a guidebook to us souls, embodied souls, as a, a blueprint for how to live in this world without becoming overly entangled in it, without becoming uh, anchored to the stresses and the tensions and the pitfalls of embodied life. Tradition says it's a 5,000-year-old text in written form. When Vyasa first took this otherwise oral tradition and embodied it in, in written form in writing. And it is a dialogue. It's a dialogue between the hero of the battle. It's this take place on the battlefield, Arjuna, and Krishna, who is revered by devotees as God in personal form. The story, very briefly, is that Arjuna has to fight a battle. He doesn't want to fight because he's a good-hearted soul, and he's had a moment, if you will, of loss of courage. Even though it's a righteous battle, he doesn't want to fight. Krishna then has what is the equivalent, I guess you might say, of a Vedic intervention, where he talks with Arjuna for about three hours. I mean, if you time it out, it's about a three-hour discussion at the end of which time Arjuna has regained his self-confidence, he's regained his sense of purpose, 
And he is prepared to go into battle knowing that whatever the outcome, this is the critical point, whatever the outcome, he's prepared for the adventure ahead. He's not looking to the outcome. He's looking to give himself fully to his dharma, to the work that is the work of his life. And what Krishna is describing here is that there is a system in place which ascribes to each individual a dharma. Now, there are different kinds of dharmas. The word dharma means duty or righteous behavior. And there are different kinds of dharmas. There's a family dharma, a righteous behavior with our family members. There's a, a, a work dharma, a righteous approach to our vocational calling. There is social dharma. There is sanatan dharma, the ultimate dharma, the dharma, the relationship that we have with the divine, with Krishna, the supreme person. These different kinds of dharmas. And here Krishna is saying that this system was created by me. Well, <laughs> the first three chapters of the Bhagavad Gita go down pretty easy because Krishna doesn't come forward the way he does in the fourth chapter, describing himself as the cause of everything. Everything is flowing from me, including your own vocational interests. I mean, this is a rather daring statement that he's making here. The first three chapters set things up. What's that? Egotistic, you might say supremely egotistical, indeed. Um, but there's a reason for it as well. Why are the first three chapters easier? Chapter one is just setting the scene. It sets up the players on the battlefield. Chapter two, the eternality of the soul, the difference between the soul and the body. That's lesson 101 of spiritual life. You're not the body, you're not the mind. You are the consciousness that sits on currents of air in the region of the heart. That's the real you. This flowing, dancing soul in the region of the heart Next to you, there is another soul. That's the super soul. That's the voice of God within the heart. That's chapter two. Chapter three comes into some interesting ideas where we talk about why we act against our own best interests. What is it that sets that up? And Krishna describes for Arjuna at that time that um, I'm being somewhat free form now with the translation of the Sanskrit language, when you stress out too much over the results of your work, when you're too attached, when you're full of cravings, kama, that's when you act against your own interests. Reminds me of a story that a uh, young person came to Jiva Mukti for classes and started attending Bhagavad Gita and got all kind of freaked out about it because he was putting all of these strange ideas about living in other cultures and other ways of being and other ways of thinking and even other ways of, of sleeping. So he went to Ganesh Das, the general manager of Jiva Mukti, and, and said, you know, Ganesh Das, ever started, since I've started taking these classes here, I've, I've had weird dreams and becoming like things from other cultures. Like two nights ago, I, I dreamed that I was a, a canvas yurt in a desert in the Middle East, and, and last night I dreamed I was a Native American teepee. And, and Ganesh Dash thought for a minute and then held up two fingers and said, I know your trouble, you're, you're too tense. I'm sorry. I had to get that out there. Um, 
it creeps up on you. It, 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 it does. Um, so in that third chapter, there's Krishna describing for Arjuna that if you're too tense, if you're too anxious for the results of your work, um, then you begin acting in a way that is contrary to your own best interest. Chapter four is when I start to lose friends. This is where we start to, you know, it, because it gets to sound like religion. Here's Krishna presenting himself as the supreme person. And um, it's a real confrontation to come up again to this part of the teaching of the Gita. This is the tricky part here. So on the surface, what Krishna is saying is quite acceptable. Right? That each of us has a unique temperament, particular skills, particular vocational calling that gives us greatest fulfillment. And really, if you think about it, economic theory, going back to the roots of economic theory, whether it's with you know, Adam Smith or John Maynard Keynes in recent, more recent years or John Stuart Mill, economic theory is predicated on this idea that work is to build economic freedom, economic strength, economic security, and that work should be fulfilling. That personal aspect is the balance to the utilitarian aspect in economic theory. So in Vedic times, for example, even though there were classes, there was a royalty class, an aristocratic class, um, and a working class, there was such sensitivity to how each of these different divisions of labor is essential, utterly essential, to the well-being of the culture that whenever there was festivity, for example, the sponsors would always make sure that servants, laborers, people who may be not as economically well-off were the first ones served. The first ones served. I remember being, for a while, living in the Krishna temple in Paris in 1973, 74, and the temple at that time was just off the Fifth Avenue of Paris, called Avenue Foch. Across the street from us was the, I don't it was a Middle Eastern embassy, I don't remember which country, but what I do remember is that at least once a week, they would have some big bash there, and you would see the limousines lined up down the entire Avenue Foch, you know, turning onto the street between us and the embassy, and the big iron gates and guards at the gates checking people's credentials, and people walking in, you know, decked out with jewelry and furs. And, and on the, what's called the Contravenue, there's, there's the main street and then there's a, a smaller side street, like, like a service road, and a, a kind of a grass strip between the two. All of the working class people from the area who serviced all of these big embassies and fancy homes on Avenue Fush would be standing around kind of like this with their arms folded and almost a kind of, you could see the, the envy, the jealousy on their faces, you know, this big spectacle of wealth parading before them. In the Vedic times, that didn't happen. There, that didn't happen because there was such respect for even the lowliest of workers, the simplest of deeds. And, and I, I have to confess that one of the things that brought me into Krishna consciousness was my first week in the London temple in 1969. I was treated like royalty. People, I was just visiting. It was the Christmas break from college. I was in 
at the university in Paris, and I went to London, and someone had said, you know, you should visit the Krishna temple. So I did, and the food was fantastic, and I wanted to help out. So I picked up one of the pots to go to the kitchen to start washing the pot. And at the time, the person in charge, whose name was Tamal Krishna, an old and dear friend who became a very important member of the um, Krishna movement in years afterwards. He's passed away now. Um, but at the time, he said to me, Joshua, you're not advanced enough to wash Krishna's pots. You wouldn't appreciate it. You should sit down here and have more prasada, have more sweets. And he would pound my, my, my plate with, with more prasadam, the sanctified foods. It got to a point where I was so anxious to wash those pots, I couldn't wait to be advanced enough to clean the toilets in the day. You know, that, that sense of this is a very advanced service to actually wash the pots of the deity of Krishna, that's not just for anybody. You have to have the, the, the real appreciation of what a, a blissful, ecstatic thing that is to do a simple service like that. So that was the Vedic um, style, if you will. And maybe the, the tragedy of postmodern America is that the well-being of the individual has been sublimated to the well-being of the economic system itself. So that people are being sacrificed to market forces. And an argument could be raised that that loss of the well-being of the individual member of the culture contains the seeds of the destruction of that system. It's, this is classic Hegelian dialectic. The technical term for it is Hegelian dialectics. And it's the stuff of revolutions. I'm not, you know, let's translate that, okay? Make it practical. Fess up now how many of you actually have taken phone calls on your cell phone in the bathroom? You can raise your hand. On podcasts, they can't see who's raising their hand, so don't worry about it. Okay. How many of you, first thing in the morning, the first thing you consume is caffeine? Okay. How many of you, the first thing um, you do in the day is check your email? Okay. How many of you use food as a relief for stress? Right, there's one hand that didn't go. Right. How many of you feel you don't have enough downtime in your life? How many of you feel that because your work is so stressful, you've been neglecting family and friends? Okay. Well, there you go. That's the stuff of revolution. And I'm not talking about, you know, there's only so much, only so long you can work people to death before you trigger a reaction. I'm not talking about some civilized, you know, Occupy Wall Street. You guys all see the well, Occupy Wall Street people outside tonight? I occupied. Huh? Did you occupy? <laughs> well, I'm not talking about something nice and, you know, parading civilly like that. Do a full-scale revolution. Civil insurrection. I mean, you look at the French Revolution, the Russian Revolution. Even here in America, it was about, you know, the taxing of people. The taxing both in the literal and metaphorical sense of being taxed all the time, being stressed all the time. So, 
in that sense, this verse by Krishna makes perfect sense, and I don't think any thinking person would dis- disagree with the idea that we should work to live, not live to work. I, I, I don't know about you guys. Anybody have friends like this? I have friends who got divorced because they put so much emphasis on their jobs, on their careers, that their families dissolved. You know, their relationships just dissolved. Boy, it's a tragic, tragic thing. Too many like that. All right, well, so far, so good, I think. You know, but when you cross the line into this notion that there's a divinity behind that system, that somehow our vocational skill sets and allotments have some kind of a personal point of origin, that's when you risk losing the trust and the credibility of those same thinking people. So part of what we do here, what we try to do here in these discussions, is come to an understanding of who Krishna is. Who he is not is the divinity of organized religion. He is not the god of church. That's a function. That's a function. And there are many people who could fulfill the function, the creator function, the provider function, the combative function. Those are what might be called expansions of Krishna. The person behind the function, that playful entity is Krishna. And that's who we're reading, his teachings in the Bhagavad Gita. So, you know, even Hindus, you know, nowhere in the Bhagavad Gita does Krishna say, I am the God of the Hindus. He doesn't say, I'm a Hindu God. He says, all beings are in me. I'm the seed-giving father of all existence. So there's an ecumenism that's really quite stunning, quite spectacular. And figuring out who that is has been a, an exercise throughout history, and there are books coming out all the time. New books recently by um, Stephen Evans, a book called Natural Signs and Knowledge of God, a recent book that attempts to define divinity and its role in the world that we know. Also for non-believers. So this, there are other books by, have you heard of Karen Armstrong, for example? Interesting author. Uh, Karen Armstrong was a nun for many years, lived in a nunnery, and just reached a point where she could no longer put up with the hypocrisy of the church. And so rather than, you know, bombing the nunnery, she became a scholar. And is something of an apologist, you might say. Most of these books, you know, whether it's Stephen Evans or Paul Moser's book, The Evidence for God, these books attempt somehow to reconcile science and religion as though they were somehow antithetical, which I do not believe myself that they are. Uh, this sense of God, not so much as a person, but God as a presence among people that inspires us to cooperate with one another something a little bit more digestible, shall we say, than a blue-skinned boy with a peacock feather in his hair who plays a flute and wears a garland of forest flowers, ankle bells, and dances with the cowherd women in the moonlight after hours. I remember once a very intellectual friend of mine and his wife, she, was, she is a therapist and he is a writer, and they were visiting us, and we were having a very philosophical discussion, and I went in to fill the lemonade pitcher, and they didn't know that I could hear them talking. And she says to him, 
if ultimate truth boils down to a little, a little blue-skinned cowboy, we're really in big trouble. <laughs> More absurd things have happened. In any case, what these authors are doing, in a sense, is, is restating or revamping uh, a classical argument for God's existence. And what is that classical argument? It's made really of three points. One is that everyone has some sense of cosmic wonder. Here are the three things that even non-believers would probably agree with that are indicative of some greater mystery. Don't call it God. Call it the greater mystery of the universe, right? One is a sense of cosmic wonder that points to some deeper reality beyond what our senses are able to perceive. We can't hear what's going on in the next room, except when the dishes get too loud. We can't see what's going on in the Krishna room across the hall. Our senses are quite limited. So that sense of cosmic wonder, that sense of something greater is going on just beneath the surface here. The second, if you will, argument for God's existence, the classic argument, is that we observe purpose in nature. And we had this conversation a few weeks ago about um, cosmologists and their um, description. This one, uh, I believe his name was Brian Ham, if I remember correctly. He said that it seems as though the universe was anticipating life. If you look at the evolution, the cosmic evolution, all of the elements coming together in just this absolutely extraordinary orchestration of, 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 of life stuff, it's as though everything was in preparation for the emergence and the sustenance and the nurturing of life. And not just as a passive action, but as an interactive engagement with the universe. Life is something that is engaging and co-creating around us at every moment the very world that we inhabit. So that sense of purpose that we observe in nature. And third, a moral impulse to honor the dignity and the sanctity of life and ultimately in all of its forms, not just human. So those were the three impulses. Now, none of that is conclusive. None of that is constitutive of and the existence of some supreme being. There's a well-known anecdote that the British philosopher Bertrand Russell, who died the year I was born, 1950, was asked what he would say if he ever met God, and Bertrand Russell replied, I would say to him, you never gave us sufficient evidence. Where's the proof? Well, the portrait that Krishna gives of himself to Arjuna does not rely on sufficient empiric evidence. In fact, it's just the opposite. He's encouraging Arjuna to find wonder and purpose and moral impulse despite the odds against succeeding, despite the odds that there's someone there moving things along. And that's what interests me. That's what interests me. It's the notion of purpose and the dignity of life and cosmic wonder even when things don't turn out the way you think they should if there is a God. That makes sense to me. That makes sense to me as a person who avows himself as non-religious. I do not see myself as a religious person at all. Frankly, I think most religion is sickening. What religion has done historically, the manipulation of people, the harm, the pain, the suffering, 
at the hands of so-called religionists is, is abhorrent. I can't imagine why any thinking person would want to be religious. Yes. Yes, of course. Of course it is. Yes, the point was, that for those of you in podcast land, the comment was that those are people who are co-opting religion for their own purposes. And yes, of course. That is perhaps the tragedy of institutional religion, is that it must inevitably be co-opted. Why? Because the institution is what protects the community, what protects the tradition, and by definition must differentiate itself from other traditions. I think I might have told you about this conference at the UN that took place about a dozen years back of uh, religious and spiritual leaders. And I had a chance to interview maybe 30 or 35 delegates to this um, gathering at the UN. There were more than 1,500 religious and spiritual leaders from around the world. The person who struck me as the most spiritual of all did not even represent a religious community. It was Jane Goodall. And I found her to be the most spiritual and, and by virtue of that also the most religious by my definition and I think yours as well. Because she did not have to represent a community. She talked about the forest as a cathedral. She talked about looking into the eyes of a chimpanzee and seeing consciousness at work there and what happens when you acknowledge that life force Will that not then get repeated and repeated and repeated and spread out ad infinitum? I mean, she was so eloquent about this. Michael? I always say the difference between being religious and being spiritual is you can be spiritual, be part of a spiritual community, a church, a synagogue. You can be a rabbi, you can be a priest, you can be a swami, a monk. That spirituality is for yourself. Religious is for the community. That's yeah, that's a, that's a good definition. Religion has a purpose, it has a function. Religion as an institutional construct is meant to set some standards. It's meant to be a, a meeting place, a place for exchange of information, a place for acquiring learning and knowledge, a place for ceremony, tradition, family ritual, rites of passage. Institu Don't get me wrong, I, I'm not decrying religious institutions. They play a vital function. But like you, I abhor the appropriation, the misappropriation of religion for improper and selfish reasons. Which brings me to the one story that I would like to tell you. And it's, I'm reading this book. This is extraordinary. Um, some of you know that the other hat that I wear is Holocaust Studies. Um, this book is called An Interrupted Life. It's the diaries of a woman named Etty Hilsom. Hilsom was born in Amsterdam. And uh, she lived down the street from Anne Frank. <laughs> and um, she was Jewish, died in Auschwitz, in 1943 at the age of 29 and this is her diary actually eight composition books that were found 
and only published in 1993. Uh, they had been kind of circulating around publishers for a long time. Finally, someone took the courage to publish it, and, and now it's become something of a bit of a sensation. The New York Times called it unsurpassed in Holocaust literature. You know, going into reading this book, you know the ending. You know she's going to die in the flames in Auschwitz. But reading it, you get this jolt of fresh air. Because her story is the story of a classical spiritual transformation. She was an intellectual young woman, very sensual, with an appetite for pleasure, educated, urbane, if you will, a liberated bohemian before such things were considered chic. She had a most intense need in life and gift, and that was to cultivate her inner identity. So in these diaries that she kept during the Nazi era, she reveals a genius for converting symptoms of what might otherwise be called various pathologies into insights about herself. So, so self-reflective that she could look at her own behavior, her own tendencies to control, to go out and swallow everything whole and, and turn that around as a trigger point for her own cultivation of a deeper spiritual inner self. If you will, her mission was to give form to the chaos around her. And that transformation as you read it is absolutely breathtaking. She sees in the midst of this hell of people being deported around her and seeing the tragedy happen before her eyes, unlike Anne Frank, whose diary was written before she ever knew anything about the Holocaust. Anne Frank knew nothing about the Holocaust. She was a 16-year-old girl. When I get out of this, I'm going to be a writer, she said. She used to love to look at the sky and the clouds. And her famous last words were, in spite of it all, I think everyone is good at heart. And the great unwritten work of the Holocaust is volume two of Anne Frank's diary, which she never lived to write. Having gone through Auschwitz and Bergen-Belsen, and now knowing what it was all about, she could have said something very important had she been able to write volume two of her diary, including criticizing and critiquing her own youthful innocence. So in this book of Eddie Hilsom's diaries, we have, if you will, the adult version. It's not sentimental. She writes in times quite lucidly about the conditions around her. But at a certain point, as the darkness was descending and the noose was tightening more and more, she came to a decision about herself for her life. And that was she declined collective hatred. The notion that all evil exists in the enemy and all goodness resides in us, whoever we may be. That somewhere there must be one good German. And if there is one good German, then you have to decline collective guilt. She stepped onto the train going from Westerbork, which was the detainment camp where she had first been interned, to go to Auschwitz. And the people who knew her there and who came out of the Holocaust described that 
as she was getting on the cattle cart to go to Auschwitz, she was talking and smiling to everyone, and she had a kind word for all. And she was full of sparkling humor, one person described. Can you imagine getting on a cattle cart to Auschwitz with sparkling humor, having seen what happened already in Westerbork? And the last sight they had of her was waving. She was waving to them with a smile on her face from a crack in the boards of the cattle car. She apparently had brought a postcard with her and her final words were written on that postcard which she dropped through a crack in the floorboards and was found later and delivered to her parents. And on this postcard was written the words, we left singing. She described keeping God in her heart. Sometimes she called it God. Sometimes she called it goodness. Sometimes she called it some the very private, special part of herself that she would not allow anyone, anyone to get to. She called it that deepest and richest part of me. Now, was she a mystic of some kind? I don't think so. I think she was someone who had understood that if you're going to come to that place of enlightenment, it's not doing business with God. It's not, I'll do this for you, and therefore you're going to do this for me. That's not love. That's some kind of contract of some kind. And my understanding of Bhagavad Gita is in that sense. It's not doing business with God. And therefore, Arjuna had no guarantee of what was going to happen at the end of the battle. He had no guarantee. There was, Krishna didn't say to him, do this and I'll make sure that things come out well for you. What he said was, do this and I will be with you. Do this with a full heart and then you are part of this grand, phenomenal, greater mystery of life. Live it to the fullest and you will find me there. That's where you'll find me. Michael, was that a thought you had? Isn't that the whole point? Uh, yes, ultimately it is the whole point. It is the whole point. Why else are we here? It's to detach even from our own idea of divinity. Right. <laughs> we make assumptions about what it would be like to be really proficient in our yoga, what it would be like to be self-aware. And it's a poor person's projection into a very spiritually affluent realm. I mean, just look at history. How many of the really great sages and teachers were wealthy people? They were, they were impoverished. <laughs> you know, they were like, they had nothing. <laughs> or if they had something, they gave it up. They preferred nothing. Isn't that an amazing thing? 
kind of makes you think about why you're living in New York. You know, what's the point? You do have options, you know. You don't have to live in New York. Huh? It's what? Stimulation. Stimulation. Oh, my goodness, yes. That's New York's great gift and also the great seduction and temptation. <laughs> well, you, as, you, as you are so kindly always reminding us, there are now kirtans in New York every night of the week. It can be done. It can be done. I love what uh, Tamar does with her um, no impact programs, which is really a marvelous tool for living on a modest budget. You know, there are ways to live. Yeah, you do it for one week. Sure. Uh, Peter, did, did you? Would, you want to say something? You know, for me, I think it's like the challenge is to, is to have the balance of both. The balance of both. To find the balance of both. Yeah. So I can't give everything up to you because I have family. Right. Right. So how do I remain relatively peaceful in your life and deal with how to remain peaceful you can't give up everything because you have family, you have responsibilities so how do you remain peaceful in that high pressured situation of providing for material needs yeah. well that was I think that's the whole point That Krishna's original plan was it shouldn't be so stressful <laughs> that's what this 13th verse of the 4th chapter is really saying I created a system where everyone should be happy doing a job that's appropriate to your skills your interests your passions your joys I give this to you right and we we're marvelous at messing things up I mean, we, we're, we're expert at messing things up It's, it's a very, very good question. It's, it suggests that there, that there may be, for those of us, and I will include myself here, who would like to be at the forefront of the exciting work of rekindling a spiritual energy in the larger culture, some way that we can be cooperating such that if one of us is in distress, the group comes together and we help each other out. That's not so unusual in spiritual circles. It's not so unusual for people who have a shared interest. That's what guilds were for. That's what unions were created for. It's what happens in synagogues. It's what happens in community centers. There's a reason for creating that institution. There you go again. The institutional side, if it's done properly, 
is absolutely brilliant. You know, and, and it's why I'm going to shut up in two minutes because I would love for us to just kind of get to know each other a little better and maybe create in this Sangha, this little group here, that kind of a support for one another. Talk it up. Talk it up. If there's any place where we don't need to be embarrassed about our situation, it's here. We're not, no one's putting on any airs here. No one's here to be seen. We're here because I think we share this conviction that there's something very beautiful below the surface that can actually have a wonderfully healthy, curative impact on all of these other parts of our life. So maybe we'll just take a couple of other comments or thoughts. What's going on today? talked about this before. Thank you. We've talked about this, that sometimes things seem so overwhelming. They say, what can I do? I'm just one little person. You know, the, the, the issues are so big and so large. And <laughs> I love um, that quote from the, the woman who founded the body shop. What was her name? I'm, uh, Anita Roddick. She used to say, if you think that uh, um, one person is too small to make a difference, you've never been in bed with a mosquito. <laughs> it, 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 it can be done it may not seem that way but it, and it starts here it starts here hmm? on oh oh talk, talk about Radha our class about Radha Oh, Rodney's life story. Oh, sure, Rodney. When are we going to hear your life story? Right now. <laughs> well, I'm we didn't we didn't prepare, so it was a little late tonight. But uh, it'd be wonderful to do that. Thank you for reminding me. Yes, it shall be scheduled. Well, that's Radhanath Swami's day. <laughs> Let's make yes. Thank you. Thank you for that. Well, maybe next Tuesday we'll all be here for Radhana Swami. But we'll make it soon after that. <laughs> so maybe now would be a good time to um, just find somebody you don't know. And um, 
Yak it up a little bit. Shall we do that? Okay, let's do that. And uh, we'll pass out, um, what do we have again? Pears and... Oh, lovely. Thank you. Thank you. Good. All right.